and welcome to Criminal Broads, a podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I'm Tori Telfer, and I'm thrilled to announce that on this very special episode, I am not alone. Yes, the rumors are true. I'm being joined by someone who is an expert on the dark, dark side of female psychology. He is a best-selling true crime author with almost 40 books under his belt, and his name is M. William Phelps. He is also the creator and former host of the show Dark Minds, and all you serious true crime fans have probably seen him many times on Deadly Women and Snapped. Radio America calls him the nation's leading authority on the mind of the female murderer. Today, you'll hear us talk briefly about his most recent book, Dangerous Ground, My Friendship with a Serial Killer, which is a very personal account of his friendship, and that should be friendship in scare quotes, his friendship, with uh, Keith Jesperson, who you may know as the happy face killer. We talk a little bit about what it's like to go to church one day and then Skype with a vicious sociopath the next. Hint, it's hard. And then we get into the criminal broad of this episode. Amy Archer Gilligan, a Connecticut serial killer who murdered dozens of people in a creepy convalescent home in the early 1900s. She was the inspiration for the play and the movie Arsenic and Old Lace, and Phelps has written about her extensively in his book, The Devil's Rooming House. So I met up with Phelps a few weeks ago in Connecticut, where we sat outside a coffee shop to chat about this woman. And now, I'm gonna warn you, my mic picked up everything. I did not realize just how sensitive this mic was until I took it outside and then listened back to the recording and heard things like this. Because her first letter to me was a, cup, a couple of sentences up. Here we go. Whenever you're filming or recording something, there's always like a gun range in, in, that starts up or like a jackhammer always. The interview is still perfectly audible, but I hope you'll accept my apologies in advance for any background noise. Without further ado, please sit back, relax, and enjoy listening to M. William Phelps take on that most interesting of subjects, the criminal broad. Writing name is M. William Phelps, and yeah. uh, you just call me Matthew. Matthew. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. This yeah, no day. problem. Big fan of your first book. Thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, well, you have certainly made an impressive career for yourself, writing about monsters, you know, of all types. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got into it? Sure. And where you are today with it? Um, well, I'm on my 39th book now, um, and how did I get into it? You know, that's a popular question, and I hate to say that I kind of stumbled onto true crime, but when I wrote my first book, I didn't say I'm going to write in true crime, you know? Mm -hmm. I looked for a good story, mm -hmm. and it just happened to be about a nurse in Northampton, Massachusetts, who turned out was a serial killer, and it, it had great people, it had great drama, it had great law enforcement, good investigation. I knew I could find out more, and so I just wrote a proposal, sold the proposal, started writing the book, and then when the book was published, before it was published, I started hearing, wow, wow you wrote a true crime book. So I really didn't realize I was writing a true crime book, because I wasn't a true crime fan, really. So as you know, um, 
when you're successful at something in publishing, they want you to keep doing it. So I had no trouble because I felt very comfortable writing in true crime. I felt comfortable writing about the monsters in society. Uh, uh, you know, my books, I like to say that the murder is a very, very small but very important part of the story. To me, the story is the people involved, the victim, number one. Uh, but law enforcement too, you know? Um, yeah, so I was successful and I just continued down that vein because I, I was finding great stories. Yeah. yeah, I totally relate to that. People are always like, how can you write about so much gore? And it's like, exactly what you say. It's like, it's not really splashing around in blood all day. It's like, oh, how interesting how bad this person is and how interesting how good this person is. Also, you know as a writer, when you're writing, you're kind of not there. Right. <laughs> you're not part of it. No. You're totally, time flies by, that whole thing. Even though, even though you're writing nonfiction, mm -hmm. you're still involved in the research and the writing, and you're not thinking really about it all until, you know, you run into a case where, whew, you're forced to think about it. I think one book of mine, yeah, Cruel Death, I had to stop writing. Really? Yeah. I, it's a case in Ocean City, Maryland, where a Navy SEAL and his wife dismembered a couple. The most horrifying part was what he did to the headless corpse after after he killed her while his wife took pictures of him doing it. With the woman's head put on the spout of the hot tub. So Yeah, so when I got when I got to that I had to let go a little bit. Yeah. It was too much. Yeah, so you never finished that book? No, I finished. You, I just, just I just stuff. had to let it alone for a while. It was just too much. Yeah. Oh, did you have to look at photos or? Yeah. Oh, there's plenty of plenty of photos. Yeah. In fact, the cop, the detective in that, after that case, ended up barricading himself in his house with the blinds closed and just became like paranoid. Got off the force. Yeah. Oh, poor guy. And he tells me the quote in the book is he says Phelps he says. I've only given you like 80%. There's 20 more percent I'll never tell anybody. Wow. Yeah. That he had seen from the crime scene? Yeah. Because they took pictures. Yeah. That's... Yeah. So... That, that takes a special type of personality and also I'm not surprised right. it splintered him. Right. Because humans aren't supposed to... Yeah, you're not that. supposed to see certain things. To, yeah. Some yeah. things you see you can't unsee, you yeah. know? Uh, I certainly, with uh, Dangerous Ground, I certainly ran into that... Uh, just because I spent so many years on that. Yes, okay, yes, let's talk about this. So, you and I first talked, I don't know, six months ago. Yeah, maybe longer. And yeah. um, I interviewed you about a piece I was doing about religion and serial killing, which I don't know if I ever sent you, but... No, I don't think you did. Oh my gosh, I'm, I will remedy that. But yeah. uh, people really responded to it because I think a lot of people wow. understand the tension. And you told me you were writing this book Dangerous Ground, My Friendship with a Serial Killer, in which you had this correspondence with a serial killer and you had told me that you kind of had a crisis of faith during, um, obviously it affected you a lot. So tell me a little bit about yeah. this book, which just came out. Yeah, so the paperback just came out and I'm getting ready to shoot a, a documentary with Joe Burling, of oh, all wow. people, on, on, on what happens after the book. So the book is the prologue to the documentary because there's... Oh, wow two investigations I start in the book mm -hmm. that I'm going to finish in the documentary but into the Jane Doe's or? yeah okay. yeah yeah nice. so yeah I mean 
I started interviewing Happy Face Killer Keith Jesperson in 2012. And I never intended to write a book about my relationship with him because he was part of my show Dark Minds on ID. Mm -hmm. So I had all this material. I mean, he wrote me 8,000 pages of letters, Skyping, phone calls, letters, all of that. Yeah, it just tore me down. It just tore me down emotionally, spiritually, physically, uh, uh, certainly mentally. Um, and yeah, I, I had a crisis of faith. I lost my faith. I mean, and, and, and as I told you, I was uh, going to Mass three, four, five times a week. It wasn't like I was going on Sundays and holidays, you know? And you were going on purpose to, to balance this, right? To balance yeah. the light with the dark. And it was working. And then it didn't work anymore. You know, so, and I haven't gone back. I mean, I tried to, I tried to, I tried to, but it's just not there right now. You know, yeah. maybe someday I'll get it back, yeah. but yeah. I don't focus on, I can't focus on it right now, you know. Um, but, but yeah, so, uh, I think there's a line in the book where I, I, I say, I got to a point where I was standing on a cliff looking down and, Christopher Hitchens was on one side and Richard Dawkins was on the other with their arms open, waiting to catch me, <laughs> you know? And yeah. that's how I felt, you know? Yeah. That's how I felt. As a journalist, I question everything to begin with. Mm -hmm. So when I started questioning, you know, Jesus Christ and all of that, you know, it just hit me yeah. hard. Yeah, well, yeah. you were, I understand, you were in the dark, uh, getting very close to the darkness. John Kelly, my forensic psychologist on Dark Minds, told me when I started with Jesperson, he's like, uh, he's like, you're starting with him. He says, let me tell you from experience, because he's interviewed Gacy, Henry Lee Lucas. He had a serial killer that he was interviewing for 10 years at the time and using as a consultant. He says, listen, you invite the devil into your house. He knocks on your door and you invite him in the house. He said, you better be fucking ready to dance with him. Because if not, He's gonna get inside your head. Yeah. And I laughed. I wasn't laughing at the end. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? So let's talk about Amy. She is a criminal broad. <laughs> she is a criminal broad. Uh, Amy Archer Gilligan, serial killer from Connecticut. Right. Um, you, your book on her is called The Devil's Rooming House. Right. So, should we start with her childhood? Is there sure. Are there warning signs there? Tell, tell me what's weird. No, there's great her. stories there. Oh. Um, so, Amy grew up in, Litch, in the Litchfield Hills, which are an hour from here. You know, now people like David Letterman, Rolling Stones have a place there, I believe. You know, it's, it's very swanky. When she lived there in the 1800s, her neighbor was none other than Harriet Beecher Stowe, Uncle Tom's Cabin, yeah. Yeah, that was her neighbor. And there's scant information about her childhood, obviously, because they lived in the, it was the country then. So there was really nothing kept. But what I can tell you is that, and this gets into what I talk about at the end of that book, is that Amy's story was the basis for, foundation for arsenic and old lace. Okay? So here are the comparisons from her childhood. She had a brother who played a violin, not a trumpet, and he would play it in front of the mirror and he would do crazy shit. 
you know? So that's where the trumpet part of the trumpet playing cousin comes into play in arsenic and lace, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, now, if I was to make a, an expert guess based on my experience of psychopaths and serial killers, especially females, there's absolutely no question in my mind that she was probably sexually abused in her childhood by serial killers are mainly abused by a close family member mm -hmm. so there's it's not the clergy it's yeah. not the bus driver or the school teacher or the dude who's grooming her from down the street it's generally someone inside the house all right because that's what starts to mess up their wiring right away mm -hmm. I would also guess that she caused trouble in that neighborhood. She did things, lit fires, that sort of thing. I mean, not all serial killers light fires, wet the bed, and do all of this stuff. But, but, I, but I can see her doing that just because of who she was later on. So I can track her from leaving there at like 16 or 17 and moving, moving to Newington, Connecticut, which is where you're headed, Middletown area, okay? She what gets, year is, what decade is this? This is the late 1800s, okay. all right? We're, we're closing in on the 1900s. Okay. She gets there and, and look, I could find no evidence to the contrary. This is where she really invents the convalescent home that we know of today. Really? She invents it. And how does she do that? Her and her first husband, um, James Archer, yeah, they're looking for a place to live in Newington. And they find this old sick guy and they say to him, we'll take care of your house for you if we can move in and stay there. She moves in, they move in, stay there, and of course he dies conveniently mm -hmm. later. Now they have a house. Now they have right? a house. A nice old house, a, a big old house. What do they do with it? She says, let's start taking care of people. We'll rent out a room and give them care. Elderly people will give them care. And elderly at the time, we're talking 45. <laughs> 55, okay. 65, like that. 65. So are they young, like 20-something Um or? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, at this time. And so they start taking in people to take care of. And they need a bigger house. So that's when they move two towns over. The house is still there. Um, on um, Prospect Street in Windsor, Connecticut, which, which ironically corresponds with Phelps Street. Really? Uh, yeah. And the whole town is loaded with Phelpses over there. Uh, so they, they, buy, they, they, they buy this brick house over there, which has like enough for like 20 beds. And she offers something called life care for $1,000. So, you, you, you know, and, and people then, you got to understand back then, when someone was 60 or 55 in the family, they were put in a sanitarium and discarded. Even if they were saying, like, this is just... Yeah, if there was one little problem, yeah. issue, health issue, the family put them away and never visited them. And, and, and this is clear in the letters that I read from the house, because these people are asking their family members to come see them, and no one's coming to see them. Uh. So, life care for $1,000 is a great deal, but the problem for a business is, if you fill it up, where's the turnover? So if there's no turnover, what do you do? You create the turnover. And the first thing she does is get rid of James Archer, her husband. She doesn't, she doesn't want him around. And she, she meets this guy, Michael Gilligan, and she doesn't want James around anymore. So he mysteriously dies at like, I don't know, 38 or something. 
Now, at the time, you can buy morphine and arsenic and all kinds of other pills and poisons at the hardware store. I look at the record books from the hardware store. She's buying like bottles of morphine. She's buying pounds of arsenic. You used arsenic, I should say, then to get rid of bed bugs, rats. No one's, no one's, of course, keeping track of this. They just, she's buying this stuff. There's some indication she was a morphine addict herself, which I can definitely agree. Um, but she's definitely given the morphine to the more troublesome patients to shut them up. But what happens is people start dying in that house. Otherwise healthy people with, with some small problems just start, and she starts taking in more. No one's keeping track. I mean, there's no such thing then as a serial killer. The word doesn't exist. The whole premise doesn't exist. Murder is such a, a rare thing. I mean, it might not be rare, but it's reported. It's not reported a lot, you know? And especially a female murderer. Absolutely. Not she has the respect of the town. Yeah. She's a business owner. Not only that, but she carries around a Bible. Ugh, she she buys stained glass windows for the church. She's a church-going lady. People respect her. She's got the coroner in town as the coroner is also the doctor for the house. So there's some indication, and it came up during the trial, that she was paying him off. Do I believe that? There's really not a lot of evidence of it, but is it possible? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so then Michael Gilligan dies. Oh. Yeah. Um, Bad luck, Amy. It, well, it's like whenever someone starts asking her questions, they die. Oh, yeah. Someone starts to ask her questions about what's going on. Why are all these people dying? Because what she would do is mis mix the arsenic with lemonade. Oh. And lemonade was an elixir then. It was like, like lemon, lemon and water. Oh, okay. Heat it up, uh, give it warm or give it cold on a hot day. Yeah, it wasn't like, when I think of a lemonade stand, I think of Charlie Brown and Lucy for five cents, you know? This just had arsenic in it. Um, and it was free. Absolutely free, as much as you could drink. Right. You know, and, and, and dying by arsenic, as you probably know from your book, is not a, not a nice thing. Yes. Take, I have been, I've gone, I'm on a mission of telling people that it's a terrible way to die. Because people think poison's like this dainty, hands-off way to kill. Sorry, continue. No, 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 not at all. I mean, you have some expertise in that. And, and generally, female serial killers used to, not anymore, mm -hmm. used to stand back mm -hmm. and watch people die. Mm -hmm. Give them the arsenic or give them the antifreeze or light the house on fire. Mm -hmm. Today, it's much more brutal than that. But, yeah... I, I tell you, doing Deadly Women over the past 12 years on ID, I've done probably 100 cases or more. And the brutality has went like this, skyrocketed, of the way women kill. Women used to kill like that, very, very hands-off. Yeah, it was personal, intimate for them. You know, they'd buy the arsenic. They'd let it sit in the house for a week. Mm -hmm. They'd obsess over it. It'd take them another two weeks to obsess over how they're going to administer it. Now, they use knives, they use guns, chains. You know, it's, it's really bizarre. Um, the number one choice for a serial killer weapon is a gun. 
and that's surprising to most people. It's shocking yeah, to would. me. Yeah. I would most of our famous serial killers hands. are stranglers. And that's, you know, that comes in second, third, a knife okay. and all of that. Yeah. But it's a gun. Mm -hmm. um, so, Amy. So, there's one tenant who moves in, uh, Franklin Andrews. And he's a guy who's pretty healthy. He's cutting the lawn. He's doing repairs. And he starts writing postcards home to Meriden, which is towards Middletown where you're going to be there. And the postcards are saying things like, the postcards were great. They have them at the Connecticut Historical Society. He's like, there's people dying here like once a week, two every month. And she's, of course, seeing this. So Franklin starts to get ill. And Franklin, Franklin ultimately expires. Now, while this is going on, the great part of this story, which took me six years to nail down, there's this guy named Carlin Gosley in town. What Carlin does is he writes the obituaries for the local Harford Current. It's the Harford Current. He's a stringer in Windsor. And what he would do is write the obituaries for the town of Windsor. He'd bring the trolley driver like six or seven shad from the river, give him his copy, and they would deliver it to the current. But what he does is Carlin starts to recognize that Jesus, all the people who are dying are coming from one address. So he begins to look into it without telling anybody because he's friends with Amy. He knows Amy. Everybody knows Amy. So he begins to look into it and he begins to go to the hardware store. He starts looking at the records there. He sees all the arsenic. And then he starts to question her. Then he takes the story to the Hartford Current. And what him and the editor do is they start writing copy about all this, but they start banking it okay. in the vault. Yeah, wow. which is kind of a mistake because the, the editor is not sure whether he should take it to the... the yeah, because there's Harford police, but there's no really local authority over there. There's So what happens is the Connecticut State Police is actually created... Really? around this case because they have these these constable officers in four districts in the state they all come together for this case and they start to investigate her well they can't really get to her so what they do is they put this woman called Zola Bennett an elderly an elderly cop in the house and she's they have an elderly female cop elderly like 48 okay. 49 50 at the time that was elderly and so they, they tell her to go undercover and pretend. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Zola. And great name, Zola great. Bennett. And Nicole Kidman. That's Nicole Kidman in the movie. I, I'm, I, I, that's, that's who I'm casting. There's actually is a, being a, a movie made about this, but it's, it's going to be a horror film. Okay. Like a Blumhouse type of, they're not doing it, but it, like a real full-on horror film. So Zola goes in there and she starts feeding information to a local coroner in Hartford because they don't trust the guy in Windsor. So what does, what does he do? He starts exhuming bodies all over the state. And they do autopsies, which are fully documented, which are awesome. They do them right in the cemetery in the tool shed. And the first thing they notice when they cut, or, cut open their stomachs is, number one, the stomachs are bloated. And number two, they're intact. They look like they've been pickled. Because of all the arsenic. They're not uh, decomposing? No. Ugh. And 
and they have this really distinct odor to them. And all they do is a quick litmus test, really, at the time, and they can tell there's arsenic loaded in these systems. So they, basically they, I mean, to make a long investigative story shorter, they, they arrest her. And when they arrest her, all those, it's like the next day, the first three pages of the Hartford Current have all these stories already written. Because they've got them in the vault. They got them in the vault that they were writing I together. Love, every other newspaper is like, what? Like, how did you get did, overnight? I love that. Um, and do the, does the paper call out Amy as this murderess? Or, yeah. Okay. And there was some controversy over, geez, you know, like eight more people died while you guys were banking these stories. Why didn't you come to us? Um, you know? Yeah. Uh, sooner. Yeah. Um, so there was some political fallout from that for for some people who knew. And so Amy's tried as the first trial of the century. Uh, this was right before, right after Lizzie Borden. Yeah, it was right after. I was just there earlier today. Yeah, it was. It was right after she did. Lizzie Borden's innocent, by the way. I'll argue that. All, I was, okay, we should talk about that. All day long. Yeah, all day long. Um, and so they have this big trial, and she's found guilty. She's sentenced to hang at Wethersfield State Prison. She's put in the prison, and she starts acting crazy. Starts calling people who aren't there because the phone is just coming into play. She starts talking to people who aren't there. It's all a ruse. She gets a second trial based on her insanity, and she's found guilty but sentenced to the asylum in Middletown, Connecticut. Okay. And and she lives till 89 there. She outlives everybody in the case. She she outlives wow. everybody in the case. She she I think she was around 89. They didn't know her real age. Does she have children? Mary Mary Archer is her daughter who who spent some time at the house. And Mary disappears, and she ends up, last time I could track her was down southern Connecticut in a convalescent home, spending her last days in a convalescent home down there. Mary was a, played piano at the house for the people. Mary was like 18, 19 at the house. Creepy little vintage piano, like off-key. All of that's creepy stuff, yeah. Um, and, And I mean, now if we talk about the mind of Amy, like I said earlier, she's a bona fide psychopath. Mm -hmm. Yes, she killed for greedy reasons, but when she started killing, she started to enjoy it. They all do. Um, Because how much was she making from these thefts? She couldn't have been making millions. That's what everybody asked. Where is all this money? She never had any money. So it wasn't like she was making a big boatload of money off this. It was a combination of greed and just being a psychopath and doing what she wanted to do, which is kill, and she was getting away with it. Um, so, and, and, and most people, most books about Amy get it wrong. She's not like a 65-year-old lady. She was like 38. Yeah, you know? when I, I've seen her mugshot where she looks very old and frail, but so yeah, that is kind of the sense She's we got have the of her. bow tie. Yeah. yeah, arsenic and old lace, little old lady, but that's interesting. She was a perfectly healthy... And 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 the, the playwright, um, he comes to town and he wants to buy her story. He wants to take her story and turn it into a play. Mm-hmm. And 
It's like, everyone's like, no. So he goes back, because he followed the newspapers. So he goes back and he just fictionalizes it and turns it. That's why, yeah, it makes it funny. And it's a huge hit all over the world. And people are wondering, why are we laughing about serial murder? This woman, these two women bury bodies in the basement. Did, did, did Amy bury any bodies in her basement? No, she didn't need to. Yeah. Because she had the coroner come and yes. get them and bury them in the... Yeah, that's, she's... Yeah. Um, you know, Dorothea Puente in Sacramento, she was like a Amy, but she buried bodies and so there was a smell. So, you know, you can't be burying bodies yeah. if you want to... Amy was smart <laughs> enough stay to... Stay free. She was smart enough to get the coroner either to be on her payroll or to convince yeah. them that, you know that they died naturally because yeah. people are supposed to die in those houses, you know? That's true. She had, the aesthetic was already like, this is where you're going to die. I, I mean, and I, I didn't even get into all the letters that were being sent to family members like, like, please help me. I'm so sick. I think she's poisoning me. Family members. So yeah. Yeah. And no one really did anything. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. So that's Amy Archer Gilligan, uh, the devil's rooming house in a nutshell. about female psychopaths then because they're just more interesting to you female psychopaths and sociopaths uh, yeah yeah absolutely because the the killer sociopath psychopath female it's more intimate mm -hmm. it's more personal and the psychology behind it it just outweighs the male 10 to 1 males can just like male killers can like pick up a hitchhiker slit his throat take his wallet and kick him out of the car a female would first have sex with him, maybe, maybe, maybe get all his money from him. Yeah, get him to sign over his life insurance. Right, and then kill him. So it's much more compelling for me as a researcher, as a, and I had, look, let's face it, I have issues with my mother, so, um, no. Yes, I do actually, but no, that's not why I do what I do. That's a perfect note to end on. True confession. <laughs> Just well, thank you for having me on thank Criminal Broad. Thank you Bras. so much for being here. Um, this was a pleasure chatting with you. Yeah, that was great fun. All right, that's all for today, folks. Thank you for listening. You can follow Phelps on Twitter and Facebook at mwilliamphelps or go to mwilliamphelps.com where you can easily purchase any of his wonderful books. Please subscribe to Criminal Broads on iTunes to be notified of future episodes and uh, please review if you are so inclined. And hey, is there anyone you'd like to see covered on this podcast? Please email me. I'm taking requests. Email your favorite Criminal Broads to torytelfer at gmail.com and I will see what I can do. Uh, the music you've been hearing is by a trio called Spheria, and I will link to their Bandcamp page and to everything else mentioned in the episode in the show notes. So I'll talk to you next time. Thanks again. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.